Hi, my name's Shelley Flett. Welcome to the Dynamic Leader Podcast, where I share insights, experiences, successes, and failures with leaders from across a broad range of industries and business structures. I maintain that each of us needs to be open to sharing our experiences and making the leadership playground safe enough to fail, to grow, to have fun, and ultimately become more dynamic. So please sit back and enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another Dynamic Leader Conversation. Today, I am speaking with Rebecca Horton, who has a reputation and a passion for helping mid-level leaders, the B-suite. She's one of Australia's leading talent and leadership coaches and facilitators, and she's also the author of the book Impact, 10 Ways to Level Up Your Leadership. And so today, we're going to be delving into that middle-level leadership a little bit more. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rebecca. It's my absolute pleasure, Shelley. I'm really excited about being here today. Excellent. So my first question, and this comes off the back of, um, you know, spending a lot of time in organisations where restructures stripped out middle management, Mm -hmm. is why are middle managers so important? (laughs) It's funny, isn't it? You're you're, you're picking up on something that happens all the time. You know, the, the big restructure where you pay millions of dollars for someone to come in and draw a big red line through your middle ranks. That's it. Exactly. Exactly. So why are they important? The the evidence shows, Shelley, that middle managers are not the laughed about crew that we've always put in cartoons. Um, Really what they are, are the the essential connector. You know, they are the, the level that joins the executive to the workforce. And the importance of that is their ability to transform strategy into performance. So what we know is that our top executives, there aren't enough of them and they don't have a personal enough connection to the front line to really drive the discretionary effort that we need today. Only middle managers and frontline managers have that. But middle managers have a level of authority that frontline managers don't have. So they can do discretionary decision making in the moment and on the fly, which keeps performance moving quickly. So what we've discovered is that mid-level leaders are actually critical to turning strategy into action. They're critical for engaging staff. Um, They're absolutely crucial for driving transformation. If they're on board to a transformation, it will work. If they're not, it will not, very, very simply. So the big red line idea has really caused some issues when it comes to strategic impact, transformation, and culture. So why do they keep doing it? Because <laughs> I know, you know, I know I get that the cost lies, there's a big cost that lies there. Is it that they, is that, that organisations don't see the return or the, the value? Yeah, that, there's an element of that, right? So the, the B-suite, well, the middle management is a huge cohort. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty much any experienced leader all the way up to the top exec. So being a huge cohort, it's jolly expensive to develop them. And because they're quite experienced, they don't respond to traditional training. So classically what happens is they get neglected. Um, In fact, BCG called them the neglected but critical cohort. (laughs) So so it's recognized that they get neglected. And I think because of that neglect, after the first couple of years, they sort of become part of the furniture. They haven't been trained to make an impact. They're not managing upwards. And because of that, they become a bit invisible. And that invisibility is really dangerous because invisible leaders are not valuable leaders. And that's really what breeds the sense 
that they're dispensable mm. because they're not very visible. That's one of the first big issues that we see with this mid-level cohort. And so given that they are the translators of the organisation where they uh, really do need to be able to manage up, manage down, manage sideways, manage all different ways, is how do they learn that? How do they... How do they get to the point where they are neglected? Because seemingly they would need to be good at it to get the position in the first place. So what sort of happens? Well, that's exactly what happens. You become a victim of your own success. You know, you, you, you come in as an experienced leader. You're good. So people don't need to pay attention to you because you've got it. And you're proud of the fact that you're pretty self-contained and you drive your own agenda. Mm. And over time, if you forget to change how you drive your agenda and start to operate at the next level up, what happens is you just become this invisible creature. People take your performance for granted, right? Um, often, you know, other people will take credit or you don't get credit that you actually do deserve because there is this sense of disappearance into standardization. So a lot of leaders find themselves starting well, you know, first two years, big waves, everyone goes, wow, there's a future potential. And then they just sort of vanish. And it's because they didn't level up how they operated. Mm. Um, you know, to, to borrow a very famous phrase, what got them here isn't going to get them there. Mm. And they don't recognize the timing for that tipping point. And when they don't recognize that, they fail to step up the gears. And, and really that's what's essential for being constantly visible and constantly adding value because you really need to beat your last year's performance. So you've got to constantly look at different ways of reinventing how you project your value in order to protect your value. And at that level that you also drive that yourself, that it is not the responsibility of someone else. And is that part of how invisibility happens is that there's this expectation that you do just go and figure it out and take it on and, and get things sorted? There's very much an element of that. And, and I think that a lot of leadership development really focuses on the leader. You know, if we develop them, everything will work. Now, the evidence actually shows that that's 60% true. The environment counts for the other part. Mm. So you know, what, I, what I do a lot in my practice is I both coach and develop leaders and I work with their C-suite to adjust the environment to enable them to have the impact that we want them to have. Um, and what I'm often finding is that, you know, the leader wants to be accountable, so assumes that 100% of the change will be down to them. Now, of course, if you're in an environment where you're told to be more accountable but people are putting more layers of approvals in, for example, you're a bit stymied. There's only so far you can go. Mm -hmm. So there is very much an, an environment and behaviour piece that drives the performance we're looking for. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's uh, quite complex and um, I guess the, the support of their leader is really about how do I enable and empower you to go out and, and seek what you need. That's exactly right. Yeah. Mm. And, and what adjustments do I need to make to accommodate you to be more impactful? Mm. You know, what we often find is that even senior leaders are sometimes dipping too deep down. You know, they're crossing, crossing the boundary between their job and the, and the job below. Um, and we all do it when we're feeling uncomfortable 
we go to our lowest common denominator because that's our comfort blanket. Mm. So we take a step backwards at things that we used to be good at to make ourselves feel better. But unfortunately, that means that we stepped into somebody else's job, Mm. which means that they too take a step back and that pushes all the way down the system. That's so interesting. So maybe thinking about those those levels and, you know, some of the um, catalysts to remove the those layers of management is to really go down that autonomous teams pathway, um, which seems to kind of have a little bit of popularity in some industries and people are playing around with it. I'm keen to get your thoughts. What is the future of autonomous teams and will how does this impact those middle level leaders, which seemingly wouldn't necessarily have a place. Well, I think if you if you mix the models, it's it's a, a recipe for disaster, right? So what we see a lot of is organisations going agile-ish, and they they kind of they keep their old hierarchy, throw some agile stuff in, pronounce themselves agile, and it doesn't quite work. That's not really a surprise. So what we're finding is that mid level leaders who exist in their traditional format in self-managing teams environments or agile environments, the actually the two things shouldn't be in the same room. Really what we need to do is repurpose those mid-level leaders into other roles like scrum masters, product managers. They still have that middle level responsibility, but they're learning to apply in very different ways. Mm. And when done well, they get the training and the support that is needed to... Um, help them understand where where then how they transition and and how they need to operate absolutely yeah yeah agile done comprehensively is something that really does need to be trained well it's not something you can adopt by accident now don't get me wrong in traditional environments who aren't going to adopt the full agile approach there are lots of useful techniques that agile uses that you can apply in your more traditional Mm. day-to-day but i would call that probably little a agile as opposed to big a agile (laughs) well put i like that and so i like the idea of being able to um, differentiate the the two and either go all in or not yeah yeah you talk about um snakes and ladders which in your book which is really interesting one of the um when i'm running leadership training one of the icebreakers or things that i'll do at the beginning is go imagine your life is a board game right now (laughs) What what game are you playing? And snakes and ladders is the most common answer. And the how people define it is like, you know, I think I'm making progress and, you know, I'll get, get a few runs on the board and then, this, you know, I hit the snake and it's all, you know, downhill from there. But what's, what's your interpretation of that? How are you using that in the book? I love the term. <laughs> well, well <clears throat> it is like you've described really, Shelley, the... The, the snakes and ladders effect really happens when the environment's playing a game on you. So that environment might be a new executive turns up and really wants you to get back in your box. So you're constrained. You can't perform the way that you want to because you've had tighter reins put on you. Or the opposite happens. An executive comes in and just thinks that your function's amazing and wants you to be amazing and all the things that you weren't allowed to do with your last exec, you can now do. So you become amazing. Um, you know, that's a classic example of the environment at play. You've done nothing different. The expectations on you have changed and mm. you find yourself often stepping up into those expectations or, unfortunately, getting squeezed and pushed down by those mm. expectations. Mm. And so um, being 
prepared enough just to deal with wherever you are on the board and just keep playing your hand? Is that the is that the key? Is that the idea? You've got to be very conscious that the board exists, you know, um, and this this concept of leadership as a game. It's something that sounds a bit yuck, right? But the reality is that leading is quite lonely and leading has a lot more upward uh, requirement than it does downward. So a lot of leading or leadership training and development often focuses on how you lead your team and often neglects how you lead your executives, how you lead thought, how you lead with reputation. So a lot of the work that I do is a lot more around the consciousness of what's going on around you, how to get your timing right, how to know what battles to fight and what ones to walk away from. Um, you know, really kind of that, it's very much a mindset piece. By the time experienced leaders come to me, they've already been leading for five years or more. It's not that they need new skills, they actually need new mindsets. Mm. So, so we work on mindset rather than skill set for the majority of the programs that I run. And they make a, a really big difference because you look at your environment in a very different way. Mm. Which changes everything when you shift your perspective. It just opens up so many different opportunities and ways of kind of interacting and um, influencing the people around you. Oh, it absolutely does. Yeah, Shelley, you would know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you talk about um, three key principles in your book as well, which I really like. Control the pace, use the space, make the case, love love something that rhymes. <laughs> I, talk to us about the, the three key p- principles, how that kind of aligns in if we've got middle-level leaders that are listening to this conversation, sure. how do they use the three key principles? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So. Pretty much every mid-level leader who comes to me comes to me a little bit busy, right? Um, Slightly overwhelmed, probably quite overworked, uh, maybe even over it a little bit. Um, And I think at the moment, and particularly in 2021, in states that are locked down or organisations that are still very much in that hybrid way of working, the workload seems to have really picked up this calendar year. Mm. And middle managers are feeling the impact of it so much more because work became so much more complex with the pandemic. Um, So the first thing that we do is really focus on how we can control the pace. If we can't slow this horse down, we know that we're going to end up coming off and it's going to hurt. So we do a lot of work on making sure that you have your own agenda. A lot of Mm. B-suite leaders don't necessarily have their own strategy or their own agenda. And if they don't have their own agenda, they're naturally at the mercy of everybody else's. Mm. And we really need to shift them from being an order taker to being an impact maker. So we do a lot around controlling your diary. We do a lot around setting priorities for yourself and the team, engaging leaders in what your trade-offs might look like. We do a lot around how you lead with compromise and using the constraints approach instead of saying yes to everything and then Mm. worrying about how you're going to make it work later. We know we can't do that anymore. So it very much is a planning, prioritising and um, a little bit of negotiating, really, but it kind of defines your area and it defines how you can say no nicely um, and how you can manage with the resources, the timeframes and the expectations that you have mm. and actually make them manageable rather than yeah, a recipe for disaster, which is what most of our lives look like when we're in the big suite. Most of the time, we're trying to achieve impossible outcomes. 
So the first thing that we usually stop and look at is why are we doing that and how do we stop doing that? Yeah. And take a little bit of power and control back. Yeah, 100%. And then, and then boundaries, manage expectations around it, move forward with clarity, I would imagine. Absolutely. Well, it just gives you more control, right? Mm. And I think that's really important. And then we move on, and that's almost exclusively where we start because mm. that's usually the first visible thing that will help leaders to have a bit of room to think differently. And then we go in to use the space as the second part of our curriculum, if, if, you, if you like. Mm. Um, use the space is a really interesting one. When I first started working with B-suite leaders, one of the things that really came across to me was that they don't get trained to think. You know, the DNA of a B-suite leader is to do we're really good at it, by the way, for phenomenal machines for getting stuff done. But sitting back and thinking strategically, sitting back and working out how all the dots connect, second-guessing our executive, Mm. um, that actually isn't an area that gets touched on in your leadership development career. So that's a space that we tend to hover on quite a bit because mindset really does matter most when you're a leader, you'll know. And one of the things that we find with leaders is and this is a universal discovery, is that they have issues with their confidence. And particularly in the middle, where you're neither Arthur nor Martha, you know, you're both a leader and a follower, you're constantly wondering if you're doing the right thing, winging it most of the time. Um, You know, everyone looks up at you for all the answers, and you know you never have the answers. Nobody does, by the way, but it puts you under immense pressure. So this ability to kind of use the space to develop your confidence, Mm and to stop undermining yourself and to set some boundaries because boundaries do prevent burnout. And right now, B-Suite is is experiencing burnout at a rate three times higher than any other cohort at work. Wow. So really building that sense of the confidence and the mindset to hold your space because that's going to be, you know, your back, your backstop, if you like, of being mm. able to manage the chaos that's going on around you. And is is part of the challenge there, you know, that entry level, the entry level leader is tends to be the subject matter expert, and it's that next level of leadership that is like, oh, now I'm now I'm actually two steps removed from the process and what it where my expertise lies, and um, often they're not really ready for that or don't know what to do with that and can be in limbo and and that would impact their confidence. Absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. And the reason that confidence is absolutely in crisis right now, I mean, Gartner tells us only 50% of leaders have confidence in their leadership at the moment. 50%, right? So one in two leaders are doubting that they should be a leader. There's a phenomenal level of leaders actually thinking about leaving leadership. In fact, one in 10 non-leaders don't want to be a leader ever. So, you know, leadership is not quite as sexy as it used to be. People are really beginning to jump ship. Mm. Um, And part of it is this compression of B-suite leadership in the middle, right? They're crushed under the weight of expectations from all directions. Mm. And quite rightly, they're wondering if they have the skills and the capability to do it, because most of the time they haven't been trained for the last decade, so Mm. they probably don't. And you're absolutely spot on, Shelley. What we're asking them to do is let go of what they've been, which is an expert, the trusted advisor, the subject matter expert, let go of that and become a senior leader. 
which they haven't done before, they mm. don't have any skills for, and they really don't want to, right? Their expertise is what made them great. And to ask them to relinquish that to the next generation of experts and to start all over again is how it feels on becoming a really good leader terrifies most of them. It's like asking a beginning swimmer to let go of the side of the pool. And they and they lose some of their identity and, and who they associate themselves and success absolutely. to. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's defined their value for mm. so long that to ask them to let go before they've mastered the other thing, it's a, that's a, a great leap of trust, you know, mm. a great leap of faith because they don't want to be without value in the, in the trough in, in between. Mm. Um, but, in fact, you have to let go of being an expert in order to really level up your leadership. And I would say that controlling the pace and being able to slow down and acknowledging where you're at, feelings and all, would be a really important you know, part of that process. It makes a really big difference. And once, mm. people, once people really adapt to, to their role being more of the controller of the pace than mm. the doer of the work, um, then you start to see a bit of a shift happening. Um, the relationship with what the work is starts to change. You know, there's mm. a lot of these sweet leaders who feel guilty about carving time out to think or read. They feel guilty. There's a lot of C-suite leaders feel guilty about that too, but this is about B-suite leaders. And this is really because they don't see that as work. Mm. Their relationship with the work is that they have to be busy and they have to tick things off lists and they have to be jam-packed all day. And if they're not that, they feel like they're kind of slacking off a bit. Again, a massive compression point because we need them to take time out to think clearly. Mm. Otherwise, their teams do twice the work they need to do. Mm. So there's quite a big material shift in the middle here. Mm. Um, so that's a really important piece. And then I think the last of the, of the three pillars, if you like, is how you make the case. So once you've got your team's environment under control, you've controlled the pace of work, once you've stood still and built your own confidence and set your own boundaries, mm. then you're in a much better position to start having more deliberate influence over your environment. And we call that pillar make the case. Mm. Um, but it is really influencing in all directions. And you're quite right. You know, we look at four directions because you're influencing everywhere all the time. And people very, very quickly realise that that's the most valuable role they can play. Yeah. So they move away from the old sense of doing the work, you know, working in the business, and they move towards being an influencer on behalf of the business. And that's where their impact takes a huge step up. Mm. Sounds quite simple, really. <laughs> uh, take, it takes a lot of complex research, um, <laughs> you know, and thousands of case studies to distill it down to something that is manageable mm. and, it, and it's not simple but ultimately it's manageable you know we yeah. know and there's plenty of research that backs all of this up that these three capabilities if you really focus on them and keep developing your mastery of them and remember that 60 percent of your performance is down to you and 40 percent mm. is down to your environment when you've got that little combination going on you'd be surprised how very much more in control of their development and their mm. impact leaders can feel Fabulous. and I think that sense of control begets more confidence you know absolutely absolutely so pace space case love it 
Yeah, makes so much sense. Now, um, I've I've quoted um, your something that you've written in the book, and I want to explore this one a little bit further. You say, whenever faced with a difficult decision, a complex proposal, or designing a complicated workshop, I insist on to sleep on it before I start the design, and so makes sense to kind of sleep on things. Why do we avoid doing that? Is that down to the pace, the space, <laughs> yeah. the case? I'm wondering yeah. well, if there's it's, a... It's the DNA of doing stuff fast, yeah? So procrastination has a really bad brand. Procrastination is seen as a weakness. It's seen as something you should never do. It gets in the way of you doing stuff fast. Mm. Actually, procrastination is there for a reason. It allows you to think things through. So making that shift from being that kind of busy, action-oriented order taker and moving into being a more contained, poised impact maker actually means that you should slow down and think things through. So procrastination becomes your friend rather than your enemy overnight. I'm a big fan of positive procrastination, um, and that's what I mean by sleeping on it. Mm. I know full well that when I've got a problem that is not obvious to me immediately, that if I stare at it all day, it just gets worse. So the best thing I can do is to distract myself to let my subliminal brain do all the hard work or sleep on it. Because mm. by morning, I'm usually a lot clearer, inevitably a lot clearer on what needs to occur. Mm. And it's really funny, actually, you look at some of the greatest minds in the world, not that I'm saying mine's one of those, by the way, but um, Sherlock Holmes, for, for an example, Every time he hit a case that was too difficult, he would take himself off, lock himself in his room and play his violin. Now, Sherlock Holmes's violin is his procrastination mm. tool. That's what he used to distract himself to allow the mind to approach things from a different angle. Mm. That's what sleeping on it does for me. So I it's love that. to really look at. Yeah. I love that it's not necessarily sleep that, will work for different people i definitely agree that sleep definitely absolutely makes the difference but it's what is your procrastination tool ryan holiday talks about uh, walking in his yeah. book stillness is the key and um you know my uh older sister refers to all of this as percolation it's not yeah. procrastination it's percolation and it's needed and it allows us to kind of sort through um all of the files in our mind to go what can I use here? What's going to be both most beneficial? Um, and we don't have the opportunity to do that unless we're slowing down enough to let our creative minds sort of think about these things. That's exactly right. And these, mm. these patterns and connections that become really important to doing the right thing mm. the first time, they're not immediately obvious. Um, you know, we work in incredibly complicated organisations where there's a lot of moving parts. So if you're faced with a complicated question and you think you've got the answer instantly, you're probably wrong. It will work, but then there'll be rework later. Mm. So actually taking a little bit of time out up front will save you quite a lot of pain later on down the track. And is that where the confidence to not give answers too quickly? Because sometimes you're pushed for other people's um, timeframes and agendas and it's like, we need this now. Is that where building the case around, you know, or using the, the space 
is really important for us to go, I'm, I'm actually not going to give you a response now because it's not well considered and, and holding, holding that space. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think holding the space is a great frame to think about that is, you know, create, create room for yourself, know how to think things through and stay firm on those boundaries because mm. you will make a rush decision, which, you know, inevitably will have errors in it. And that will, that will still come back to you. You will still be the, of course you will. the cause of that. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, so the more often you can confidently say, we don't have enough data yet, or if the pressure is realistic and, you know, really does need to be a decision made today, then what you can do to be smart about it is to put together a plan that allows you to pivot partway through mm. when the new information inevitably turns up that changes the plan. And managing the expectations of those around you becomes your mastery, not actually solving the problem quick. Your mastery becomes how do you manage everyone's expectations that we have incomplete data. Therefore, this is quite a bit of a guess. Therefore, mistakes are going to be made and adjustments are going to be required. And you're going to be okay with that. Mm. You know, manage that conversation rather than worry too much about the perfection of your answer. Yes. Love it. I think a lot of leaders will struggle with that one, but that's okay. Yeah, well, leadership's not easy. Definitely, definitely not easy. Yeah. No, it is not. Um, so you talk about buy-in, which, you know, commitment makes sense. You talk about stay-in. So what's the what's the difference between what's stay-in? I've not heard of that term used. I like it. Yeah, well, I think we're all quite familiar with buy-in. You know, we have to get executive buy-in. We have to get the team buy-in taking people on the journey. There's another phrase that kind of means buy-in. Um, the difference between buy-in and stay-in, buy-in is there on face value. So people will agree with you if your logic is sound, if your benefits are solid, if you're aligned to the strategy. What happens with buy-in is that new information can easily lose the buy-in. So let's say a different priority turns up for that executive. They can ghost you. We've all been ghosted. You know, the support that we were promised is hard to find suddenly. That's really a sign that their environment's changed. So you're no longer top of their priorities. The issue with that, of course, is that it's still your number one priority and you're left carrying the can single-handed, making it virtually impossible for you to achieve your goal. Mm. And they're unlikely to change their position because their priorities have shifted. So they're going to stay focused on achieving their goal. And that's human nature and that's completely mm. okay, but it does leave you in the lurch. So the difference between buy-in and stay-in is finding that connection point with your stakeholder that pretty much assures you that they're not going to drop the ball on this one. It actually means that they're not just agreeing to support you, but they feel that you're supporting them. Mm. And that this priority is as important to them, if not more, than it is to you. That's a fundamental shift from superficial influencing, mm. which gets people to nod in the room, mm. and really deep influence, which gets people locked in. That is a fabulous skill to learn and master, I would um, say, at that level as well. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So I have a final, a final question. I'm loving the simplicity of all of the um, things that you talk about because I think above all, leaders need to be able to consume this thing and learn and grow um, quickly and easily. 
because until they have a little bit more time on the hands, they just need those quick approaches. So I like um, I like how your book really covers it off in a really simplistic way. Thank you, because that was the plan. You know, we know the B-suite are so busy they could explode um, and the busyness is not going to go away. You know, that's a reality. It's just going to get worse and worse. It has for the last 30 years. There's no data mm. that will show us that some magic day it's all going to cool down. It's not. Mm. So for us and for me, when I wrote that book, I really wanted it to be something that was a quick reference guide that was quick and simple tools that people could just start applying straight away. Yeah. Um, and not overwhelm themselves. So it's been great that that's been the feedback, actually, that people turn to it again and again to just remind themselves what's the best tool for this, what's the best approach for that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you you say that half the battle of leadership is keeping a conversation in neutral, which off the back of we're so busy, pace is so fast, why on earth would we want to stay in neutral? Because <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> it felt like we're moving anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that does. Um, so what we, what we know with traditional influencing skills building um, is that there's a lot, uh, well, much of it came from the 50s to the 80s and was sales-based. So a lot of the time when we think about influencing people, we think about it from a sales perspective. Um, a lot of leaders find it a little bit, um, a little bit greasy, you know, they don't like the prospect of deliberate influence. They find it manipulative. They think managing up is sucking up, et cetera. Et cetera. Yeah. So kind of shifting that, um, shifting that paradigm for people is really, really important. Um, I've totally lost our train of thought. Shelley, you asked me a great question. About keeping in neutral. Thank you. How do you keep the conversation yeah, neutral? neutral? So, so a lot of training that is related to this is kind of predicated on getting to a yes, mm. which is great. But what often happens is that in our eagerness to get to a yes, we rush the fences of the other party. Mm. And we might get a nod, but it's the worst kind of superficial nod. It gets turned over the minute the door is closed, right? And what we really, really want is to keep people open-minded a lot of the problems that we want people to engage with us on are really complicated. There's a lot mm. to think through. Mm. So asking for somebody for their commitment too early, you'll, you'll either get a fake yes or an outright no. And once somebody has said no, they've moved on mentally. They don't want to hover on this anymore. So this concept of staying in neutral is really the concept of let's keep the discussion open. Let's keep your mind open to the possibilities. Let me keep learning about what you need for staying. And then we're going to get there. Perfect. A lot of people, I think, under immense pressure to turn things around quickly, often rush that process. And it's a classic negotiator, you know, classic negotiation process. But if you go too fast, you'll get an adverse outcome. Mm. Yeah, or remorse at the, on the other side of it. Exactly right. Oh, I love that. Keep the conversation in neutral. It's, it makes so much sense when, yeah, we do, we rush through it way too quickly because and a lot of the time it is we're so focused on our own outcomes that we lose sight of what's going on in someone else's world and we don't take it into consideration and then they don't feel heard and it's compounding really quickly yeah yeah that's exactly right we're in unfortunately in, in, in such a rush that we do a pretty shallow job mm. and this is where i would um oh, this might be a really big challenge for some managers who um, don't have 
someone who can press pause for them in the moment and, you know, a lot of that hindsight and reflection. But being able to, is it about being able to go in in neutral and then just stay in neutral? Is that the intention through a conversation? Because sometimes you can get into the conversation and then go, okay, we're, we're good to go and mistime it or push it ahead is, how do you learn how do you learn to stay neutral I guess is what I'm asking yeah that well there's a bit of a methodology to it and it is based on some of the world-class negotiators out there um mm. the the idea really is to is to state the outcome that you'd like in the end and then to move away from that immediately and go into questions so mm. really lots and lots of discovery on what's happening with your other party what do they need how might something like this offer any value to them whatsoever? Mm. Really kind of take them through a big learning and listening curve so that at the end of it, you're able to feed back to them what they want from this in a very beyond consultative, really, you know, mm. in, in a really open and engaged way. Mm. So they know that you've got their best interests at heart, but you never hid your agenda in the first place. So it's a nice balance. And when you can do that, there's a lot more respect in the room. You build trust very quickly. Mm. And trust is the foundation for really getting difficult things done, right? Yeah. So that approach, simple as it sounds, goes an awfully long way. Yeah. It sounds like a conversation without the greasiness. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. And because you, you've stated what you want, yeah. they know if they're not going to let you get there, that it doesn't work for them. But you've created a trusting environment where they could actually say that. And say, so, you know, I think we've got a conflict. So where could we where could we compromise so that you get a little bit of what you want and I get a little bit of what I want? Neither of us get exactly what we want, but that would be okay. Mm. You know, how do we bring it together in the middle one step at a time? And all the way through that, you're very neutral. Very neutral, not too pushy, not my way or the highway, you know, really open. That is fabulous. Um and a, a great point to end on because I think I'm going to go away now and just continue to think about that remaining in neutral and how long. And, you know, it's something that um, I think good leaders learn to do but not necessarily be able to define it like that and, and put some structure around it. And so this is this is great. I think it's um, something that middle managers will really relate to and be able to apply. Great. Well, thank you for the feedback. That's good to hear from you. That's awesome. I want to thank you so much for having the conversation with us today. You've given some really useful insights into how middle managers who, as you mentioned, can be really, um, it can be a very lonely space. It can, it's fraught with um, probably self-doubt and a little bit of imposter syndrome and building of confidence and needing to find a different way to work. And I think that your book and the conversation today has really helped, um, you know, maybe establish some direction for those managers for their own development. So thank you so much for sharing that. It's been great. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Shelley. Excellent. So anyone that wants to um, buy a copy of the book, we'll put the link in the comments. And if you want to connect with Rebecca, I will include her LinkedIn um, connection link to the comments as well. But thanks again, everyone, um, for listening. And I look forward to another Dynamic Leader conversation soon. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Dynamic Leader. There is no better time than now to work through your leadership and people strategy to establish what the future might look like for your business and how you might empower your people to help you succeed. 
It is through building the capability of your people and reducing their dependency on you that will keep you moving forward at pace and will see you remaining relevant in the future. I have worked with over 100 businesses across almost as many industries and seen firsthand the challenges that come with employing, engaging and managing staff. If you're looking to improve how you lead, why not reach out for a conversation? In the meantime, thanks so much for joining me and stay awesome.